This, this session is supposed to be on uh, the trace elements, which we're going to cover. I'd just like to take a few minutes before we do it, because I didn't get to this. Yeah, boy, the sun comes out. You really can't. I was hoping to use them. I'll just tell you what some of the numbers are. This, this soil test is, is one where blueberries are being grown, or were going to be grown. They are now be growing there. Um, I brought this up before. I just wanted to use this as an illustration again how, you know, in, incomplete information can lead you to do things that are not the best thing to do. Um, how many of you, you people, how many of you guys grow blueberries? Anybody grow blueberries? How do they tell you to grow them? What do you have to have to grow blueberries? Acidic soil. Acidic soil. Boy, they just hammer that. Acidic soil. Did anybody ever tell you why? Right, that's why they tell you to grow it, is to, because the blueberries require a lot of iron, and, and iron is more available at a low pH. Now, let me ask you a question. What if you have a high pH and you've got plenty of iron? Should still be available. If you have plenty of iron available at a higher pH, do you think you could grow blueberries that way? The truth is that the best blueberries don't grow on an acid soil. They're focusing, I'm going to touch on a few points with blueberries just to show you how the, uh, an acid soil is actually not that good for blueberries. They tolerate it. And the reason, the reason why they use this method, I have searched and searched and searched for the technical reasons why you should grow blueberries on an acid soil. And other than the iron thing, you can't, you can't find anything. Um, and in fact, uh, I'll, I'll share you. Make sure I share about the rhododendrons. They're also a, they're also a, um, a, a supposed acid-loving plant. They're in the uh, ericaceous family, just like blueberries are. And if you ever, anybody grows rhododendrons or azaleas or anything like that, they tell you the same thing. You, they have to have acid soil in order to grow them. Uh, I will tell you, just so I can get through, to make sure I don't forget that, over in England, uh, actually, all of the ericaceous plants are magnesiophiles. They need adequate magnesium. And they actually grew rhododendrons in, over in, in England at a pH of 8.4. And they had beautiful rhododendrons, but they made sure that the plant had everything that it needed. So it's all about whether the plant can get what it, get what it needs. But you're, you'll be hard-pressed to find any research. But I, I'm going I'm to point out to you some of the, the, the hazards of growing blueberries that way. Yes, sir. The what family? Ericaceous family. Eric, it's e, e r i c a c e o u s. I think I got that right. The ericaceous family. Heather's in that family. Azaleas, rhododendrons, uh, blueberries, cranberries, bilberries. They're all they're all in that family. Okay, you can't. If you can see this, what is the pH of that soil? Six point seven. You know what they tell you, what the pH they tell you to grow blueberries at? Five. They'll tell you you've got to be at least down at five. Some of them are even pushing four and a half now on being that low. The reason that they tell you that, does anybody know where blueberries were found in the wild? They were found in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey, Michigan, and Maine. All acid sandstone formations, poor fertility, 
And without that acidity, there's, there's very little iron there. Without that acidity, you're not going to get enough iron for those plants. But the real question is, do they still need all those other nutrients? Or don't they? And uh, one of the things I'll tell you is, is blueberries are, are calcifuge. And what that term means is they, the calcium is like uh, anathema to them. That it, it's deadly to them or something. But this soil has 80.48% saturation of calcium. By the way, the blueberries are doing wonderful on this soil. There were, some, there were some deficiencies and stuff that we had to take care of, but uh, when he saw that 80.5% saturation of calcium, he said, oh, wow, I can't put them on there. I explained to him, and the interesting thing with this man, when I explained to him about complete and balanced fertility, he said to me, that's God's way of doing it, isn't it? <laughs> he, and then he said, I knew it had to be that way that the way we're doing things is just not right. There are varieties, there's a variety called South Moon. They grow in Florida on really sandy soils. It is a fabulous blueberry. It's got, it, it's not hard, but it's got a crisp texture to it. But then it's tender when you, when you eat it and the flavor is just out of this world. But they have a hard time keeping them alive. There's other varieties where they'll, they'll peter out after so many years and they'll just die out. Well, if you're starving something to death, don't you think eventually it's going to do it in? Let me just give you some, on blueberries in particular, every crop needs complete and balanced fertility. You do need to be mindful of the unique characteristics or requirements of a particular type of plant and make sure that you're being attentive to that. Like if you're growing blueberries, you need to make sure that your iron levels are... Not everybody will be as aggressive as they could be at, at restoring mineralization. They can't afford to or whatever, so if you have to prioritize what you're doing, you, you got to be sure you prioritize where you're spending your money to make sure you're maintaining the balance to the extent that you can and, and building things as you can build them. But in this case, you'd have to be sure there was plenty of iron there to make sure that those blueberries were going to get what they needed. But blueberries are kind of are kind of sensitive. And the reason that they are is because of their root system. They have what's called a rudimentary root system. They don't have the tiny root hairs. And it's a fiber, more a fibrous, finer root system. It's very vulnerable to water, both the lack of water and too much water. It's not very, they're not very efficient. Now, if I had grown an acid sandstone for, for you know, centuries, who knows how long, if I'd grown a soil like that, you'd wind up being like that too. But anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very sensitive root system is where the, where the problem comes in. They don't, they don't harvest minerals very well as a, root, as a root. And so those are two big issues that have to be addressed. They need help from the soil. They need help from the microbes in the soil. They actually, they actually produce a, a mycorrhizal relationship. It's with an aracoid fungi that they do, re they do establish a mycorrhizal relationship with, with that aracoid fungi, and that fungi goes out and, and assists the, the plant with water and, and nutrients. It also establishes some other relationships to provide, it, provide nutrients to it. You need a, a higher organic matter environment is preferable with, with that type of root because it helps to keep... Now, this is where good chemistry actually gives you that porosity. It needs good aeration around the roots too, and so a higher organic matter level there 
not only provides better microbial interaction, but it also provides better um, porosity in the soil. And so if you get good chemistry, you can also overcome that, overcome that as well. So it has to do with a, a weak root system. It has a very vulnerable root system, and that's why they do some of the things that they do with, with blueberries. Um, so, let's, so let's look at some of the things. What happens? Another thing that they'll tell you about blueberries is they, you have to use ammonium nitrogen. They can't, and that's another reason to keep the pH low, because it keeps nitrogen in the ammonium form, and any nitrogen fixed or becoming available out of the humus will, will stay in the ammonium form for a long time. They say they can't process nitrate nitrogen. Now, one of the logical, well, logical things that I would do is I would ask the question, why can't they process nitrate nitrogen? Molybdenum is required as a cofactor, as a coenzyme, in the process, in the nitrate reductase enzyme process in order to process nitrate nitrogen, metabolize it. At a pH of 5, molybdenum is completely tied up, not available. So if you're maintaining that kind of pH, you're, you're causing dysfunction in that process. And so it doesn't have a, a high nitrogen reductase activity because it doesn't have molybdenum to, to make that process functional. At a, at, a, at a higher pH, a balanced pH, where you have a balanced soil, molybdenum is functional. That's if you have it. Now that's another one that I always make sure that, when I have people test stuff, I always make sure they test cobalt and molybdenum. We'll get to those two when we do the traces just in a second here. Um, because they're essential for nitrogen, for, uh, for natural nitrogen fixation. Uh, the, the nitrate, um, nit nit uh, I don't remember the name of it now. There's another enzyme that requires molybdenum for the rhizobium bacteria and the free living bacteria. In order for them to fix nitrogen, they have to have molybdenum. And so if you want to move to, and we'll talk about that more, if you want to move to a more natural nitrogen cycling system, you better have adequate cobalt and molybdenum. Typically not measured, nobody, nobody pays attention to it. Uh, cobalt, we'll save cobalt for when we get to there. Um, <clears throat> but you also have to have that. So another, another issue is calcium. If you maintain calcium, the plant requires calcium. Calcium is important for the facilitating of the movement of nutrients into the plant. And so if you don't have adequate calcium, you're not going to get that. So that you already have a weak root system, and then you have a weakened facility for moving nutrients into the plant by a lack of calcium. That's a problem. Calcium produces strong cell walls. Calcium, if you want higher yields, calcium will determine how many, when the, when the embryo of the fruit is fertilized, that initial growth will it'll be how many cells, how big that blueberry is going to get will be determined by whether there's what quantity of calcium is available. Then potassium takes over and fills the cells out. But still, the cell walls have to be calcium. So if you want a bigger blueberry, you better have adequate calcium there. It also, because it makes the cell wall structure stronger, you get better shelf life when you harvest the berries. You get a better texture to the berry as a, as a result of that. Um, let's see, what's another one that, that I should point out? Oh, you'll just get higher yields. I mentioned that. You'll get higher yields on it. There's some other things that are not coming to mind right now. I don't have the sheet in front of me that I sent to him because he's the grower of the blueberry nursery in Kentucky. And so he works with all kinds of growers wanting to put blueberries in. And he said, give me something I can give to them to show them the reasons why. The highest yields 
and the best quality blueberries come from complete and balanced soil, not from acid soils. I did some inquiry. I was trying to figure out what yield expectations to have on blueberries when we planted them. We grew blueberries in Colorado. You're not supposed to be able to do that. <laughs> we did have them protected because of the, the, the low humidity and the, and the amount of wind and everything we get, the desiccating uh, impacts that we have. But um, I also wanted to find out what kind of yields I could expect. And when I called around to some of the major nurseries and looked for research and everything like that, if you look in gardening catalogs that sell blueberry plants, they'll tell you five to 10 pounds. There are growers producing 35, 40 pounds of plant. That's a huge difference between five and 10. They always tell you five and 10 because they figure you're not gonna really invest a whole lot of energy into really growing a healthy plant. So, but the range was all the way from five pounds to, to 40 pounds was the expected yield. So I prefer the 40 pounds over the five pounds. Uh, and I want it to be, and they taste way better, way better when you, when you grow them that way. So here's another situation. And, and how many, like I said before, how many people grow their gardens by adjusting every little spot in their garden to what supposed preferences are? What if you got a soil, something that needs a pH of 7, and you got something that needs a pH of 5, and you got something that needs a pH of 7.2, and nobody does that. You do a complete balanced soil, and you leave it to the plant to take what it needs. And uh, it comes back to the character thing again. You change the, the character of the soil, and the things that come out of it will, will take care of themselves, and they'll, be, they'll just be added to you. They'll just they'll take care of it no matter no matter what it is here. So... I don't know. I don't know how successful I'm going to be. Uh, the, the, the reason I had it up here, I was going to, I was going to actually use this to point out the different things you need to know. You need to know the exchange capacity. It's helpful to know the pH of the soil. Soil, not because you're going to align based on that pH. You're going to, you, you know that you're going to need the lime. You just then you need to find out what it is. But you should always get. Like on nitrogen, nitrogen is the one thing, if you look down here, nitrogen is the one thing that uh, is determined by what the crop is that you're growing. Okay? You can build nitrogen reserves in the soil, and that's what that number is where it says ENR value. That ENR stands for estimated nitrogen release. And what they're talking about re releasing from what is your, your humus level, your humus content, is how much of that is going to break down throughout the year and what you can expect to... Uh, how much nitrogen you can expect to get out of that. So then you can take that and if you need 150 pounds of nitrogen, you can subtract 50 from that requirement because you know you're going to you're going to get about that much out of that and then you know then I got to get come up with 100 pounds and figure out how that's going to happen. Uh, which are various approaches on that, but oh, there it goes again. Um, but anyway, what I was going to point out is that you want a desired value. You want to know what the desired value, and they should be able to tell you that. And then your value found, and then what the deficit surplus is. And then on the other side is just where uh, you've been informed, like for example, you'll see in the highlighted yellow, if, it's, if there's a, it's a real problem, like it's really deficient or excessive or something like that, I always highlight it um, so that it gets people's attention. Because I've had, I've had growers call me back and say, uh, what about this? And I said, didn't I put that on, didn't I put that on the, the report? No, I didn't say it to him in a condescending way. I was thinking, well, did I forget to put it on the report? So I pull it up on the computer and I say, well, it says such and such and such. Oh, I didn't read it. <laughs> well, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to know what to do if you don't read it. 
Um, sometimes things can be confusing. I try to, I was going to put a, a Kinsey Ag, Ag Services recommendation sheet up here too so you can see a little bit of the difference. But what the biggest difference between the two is I try to give as much information as I can about what it is you're trying to do and when you should try to do it and all those things in, in the process. But you'll normally have up there, you should have what, what the actual percent saturation is and then your desired on calcium and magnesium. And you see next to, next to each of the numbers is the desired number that you want to have. That range is the, the, the range you want to be in. The low end of it is uh, like on potassium. If you were 2%, you're going to be hard pressed to, to grow things really well. You really need to be further up than that. But again, those are, those are the things I, I won't, unless somebody has some questions about it. Uh, the other thing is always the recommendation is broadcast. In this case, it's per acre. I do the recommendations sometimes in per 100 square feet or 1,000 square feet, depending on if a person just has a garden and it's only a couple hundred square feet. I, I don't want them to have to cal calculate it down from, from per acre numbers, so I, I try to do it based on what the person asked me to, asked me to do it in. But it is broadcast. A lot of people just want to, it's gotten so bad now that a lot of growers will just ban stuff down the rows. They'll, they'll put it underneath the row when they're planting or they'll ban it down the sides to minimize how much fertilizer they're having to put down because they can't afford to actually put down. But you want it broadcast because when you start working with the microbes in the soil, they're going everywhere to get that, those nutrients. You want that whole environment healthy, not just a, a narrow band on it, a narrow area on it, but you have to be able to afford to do that. But all of, all of the time, it's, all, it's always assumed you're going to broadcast this. And I shared yesterday about the trees and how you know, orchard growers will just do that, but they're a lot better off when they broadcast the whole area and get the whole area healthy. Yeah. Uh, in terms of method, is, uh, I know some of these are water soluble, so I mean, broad, you know, just spraying across the field is uh, better, or is that if you rely on rotation, will it vary? It, it, it will vary when we're going to do the trace elements here, you see that some of them you're putting in su you're going to be putting in such small quantities the question the question was you know how do you apply them you apply them as, as solid materials or as you know liquids and spray um, solid materials are always the least expensive source you can get a lot of it in liquid form but it's going to be a lot more expensive some of them in such small quantities that you're going to have to spray it on like if you're putting 7.5 ounces of sodium molybdate on, molybdate on to an acre, 7.5 ounces to an acre, that's the maximum you can put on at a time. Now, good luck going out there and trying to <laughs> sprinkle it around into the universe. So it's just I just put it in solution and and spray it. If I can if I can spread it, I always tell people. A lot of times people call me back. Well, they just had it in powder form. A lot of times they only have it in powder form because they're using that as a feed supplement. You're getting it from a feed store or an ag store, and they're primarily they're primarily primarily inventorying it because they're going to add it into feed as a supplement. That's a whole other area where it's getting totally messed up, where animals are getting totally messed up. I talked to a friend in Australia, another consultant in Australia, and he works with hair analysis both on animals and people as well as the soil consulting, and he he picks up. The things that they do where they think, oh, if we put this much in, we'll just add a little bit more, and it comes back out the back end of the cow while it's wreaking havoc and while it's in internal, comes back out the back end of the cow, people composting the manure and putting it on their fields, and their, their zinc goes out the roof, or something goes out the roof, and they wonder, well, I didn't put any zinc on. Where'd it come from? 
Well, it came from all that manure, the, the compost that's coming out of the, that feedlot or wherever where they're getting carried away with the zinc in the supplement. But it's always better in granular form. The fertilizer materials are already better in granular form if you have to put them on in quantity because then you can blend them. There's, I don't know how many things to share with you because I can make it overwhelming and complicated. The reality is that each fertilizer has a different density, it has a different shape. And so if you were running down the field with a, I, I prefer to spread all my elements individually so I can get them on as uniform as possible. I think that small scale with maximum, with, with intelligent management can be at, you know, more than productive enough to, to make a living. Um, but I, be, I like to be very accurate with what I'm doing so I, I spread them individually. When they do a blend for you and they put it in a buggy to spread it, as it bounces down the field and they, and they spread it, it throws at different distances depending on its density and its shape. Uh, it, it, disassoci it, it separates out in the buggy, so if they put a big full buggy worth of stuff in there as it's bouncing down the field, it's separating. And so you're going to get some, by the time you get to the end of the buggy, you're going to have a little bit different blend than you had when you started uh, just, just because of that. And so there, there, there's no way around that if you're doing large-scale stuff except to apply it individually. And, you know, that can get time-consuming and it can get more expensive to do it that way. So you choose your battles. You, you, take, you take the most fundamental issues and you address those first. And as you want to go up with those things and try to refine them to get things better, it's the people that wind up continuing the refinements that get to a place where very few people get to, where they have total disease and pest suppression and, and weed suppression and uh, high yields, high quality. There's not a lot of people out there that have, have gone to that place. Even people that know this model, a, a huge percentage of them are content to just do the minimum you have to do to get a crop and, and you know, make sure it's, they're going to get the crop. It's just a matter with them. I want to make sure I get the crop every year because I've got adequate fertility there that it's going to be, I'm going to get the crop. I'm not going to have so much pressure on it to, to cause too many problems. Very few people actually follow through and do everything. So. Now, with something like copper, you, you would want to mix that with something or something. I mean, the copper... Yeah, usually, can I wait to answer your question until we get to copper? Sure. I'll answer your question when sure. we get to copper, because so, if we don't get to it, we're going to be, okay. All right, so all of this, we're talking about granular form, but it's going to go into solution, right? Right, you're, you're wanting to use, you're actually wanting to use soluble forms. Right, and so there's a dispersion component here. If we're working with a thousand square feet of garden, right, and you don't get those granules planted every so many centimeters, there's a dispersion factor that will take and spread that. And so, you know, I want to harmonize the, the accuracy here. Of it's in, if it's in the garden somewhere, I don't mean in one corner. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so. you want to be as uniform as possible, but I'll just answer this one about copper. The other one will be better answered later. But with copper, for example, if you're putting a handful that big on an acre, you're going to have a, a crystal here and a crystal over there and a crystal over there. And people say, well, how... How do you get that dispersed out over the whole area? And my answer is, I don't know how it happens. I suspect the microbes do it. I mean, dissolving and just movement with water. But you'll come back the next year, and you can put a probe down in the ground anywhere. And when you pull it out, you're going to see that increase in copper. So it gets dispersed out. It, the, the key is just to make sure you're as uniform as possible when you're spreading. You don't want to spread two-thirds of it in this corner and the other third in the other rest of the rest of the garden. You want to be as, you know, accurate with it as you can starting out, but it gets spread out. It gets moved, moved out and around. 
you would have to separate the cations from the anions. Who was I talking to was sharing with me about the sprayer where they mix the, uh, they, they'll react with each other. There's been more sprayers ruined by people blending things in there that are not compatible and they solidify and just seal the, I was talking to somebody about the sprayer, put the stuff in, it's, it's solidified, it's solidified in the tank, it's solidified in the hoses, it's solidified in the spray heads. They had to tear it all off and start over again. So there's, it could potentially be done that way, but it, you'd have to separate out the compatibilities to make sure that they wouldn't. Yeah. On this set, on, on, on this, they're all in pounds because most people, most people, I try to make it as easy as I can for people, and people know pounds. When I put parts, the, the, the trace elements at the bottom are in parts per million. Parts per million, if you just multiply it times two, you get the pounds. If you just take the pounds and divide it by two, you'll get the parts per million on here. I, they, I actually changed it all to pounds because the actual elemental on here too, a lot of soil tests, they'll give you phosphorus as P2O5, and they'll give you potassium is K2O, and I actually took it, and I, I, it's all based on elemental, so that they're all consistent. They're all apples to apples. You're seeing it as elemental, and then, then we figure out how much is needed based on the, the source, which is a P2O. They, they use the measurement as P2O5, and so when I figure out how much they're going to need, I've got to figure it based on the elemental, not on the P2, P2O5. Thing. Two hundred twenty to two hundred thirty. Now that would be that's in parts uh, that's in pounds of act elemental phosphorus. If it were in P two O five phosphate, that would be five hundred to seven hundred fifty pounds. It'd be a desired value. That's elemental phosphorus, two hundred twenty to three hundred thirty pounds. I just try to make it uniform, but um, yeah, it would be five hundred to seven hundred fifty pounds if it was if you were measuring as P two O five. Okay, so we need to shoot through the trace elements. We'll do it the same way, the same way we did the other other ones, just giving you some the roles, sources, um, excesses. And I, I have on these. I hadn't. I forgot that I hadn't put them on the the others. The desired values you're looking for. So the first one we're going to look at is boron. Boron is an anion, and its roles are cell wall integrity, keeps calcium mobile. Remember I mentioned when we were talking about calcium, if you don't have adequate boron levels, you can wind up with blossom end rot because the calcium is not mobile enough. So some of these factors you need to understand, you need to come to understand. Uh, it may not necessarily be you have blossom end rot, somebody say, oh, you need calcium. You might you apply the calcium and, and it's fine because it actually got the calcium to the source, but it was actually a boron problem that wasn't keeping the calcium mobile to get it to the source. Uh, flower set, if you want to set, you know, lots of flowers, then you better have adequate boron. Translocation of starches and sugars. Sweet fruit, sweet product, vegetative or fruit. Uh, it's going to depend on boron levels. Um, boron is highly leachable, just like sulfur. It leaches very easy, and so from year to year, when you take a test, you put it on, you're going to lose. You're going to lose some of it, and it's one of those things that has to be monitored all the time. The goal is to keep it at an ideal level, 
at an optimum level all the time so that you get a continual building of that boron into humus, into organic matter, because the anions can be stored in that complex, and if every year there's adequate boron there, and whatever takes it up, and when it, when it dies and it starts breaking back down, it's going to store that boron in, in that organic matter. And so that's what your goal is, to keep things at their optimum levels all the time in order to get, start building all those things into your, your humus reserves. Uh, your desired value on, on the test that I use, and I'm going to emphasize that, um, because, like, for example, if you were in Bob Gregory's class, his numbers, on, especially on the trace elements, are going to be a, a little bit different. It's because of the tests that are being run, and it's also because I'm using Albrecht's modeling. He's using his experience in the rose industry to, to determine what numbers. And I'm not saying his, his numbers are bad. There, there's nothing wrong with them. I'm just saying that don't go and say to somebody, oh, well, Whitmar said that that's what it's supposed to be, and how come you're saying that that's what it's supposed to be? It's based on, a, you know, where I'm getting my numbers from and, and experience. My experience has been that these numbers work very well. Bob's, Bob's numbers work really well because you're addressing it. So, I mean, just the fundamental reality that you're actually addressing the issue and the need for the trace element is a big thing. So just, I just wanted to say that because I've had people come back and say, well, so-and-so said this and you're saying this and how come? So I just want to know, let you know why there, there might be a difference in the numbers. One might be just as valid as the other. It's just the, the way that the number was derived. Okay, but the desired value would be one and a half to two. The only reason you have a variation there is, is uh, because of the, the CEC again, the capacity of that soil. On the higher capacity soils, you want to maintain it a little higher. And while we're starting out here, what I'm going to tell you is when you get your, when you get your major elements balanced, where you get a lot of the improvement is in t you now can take these trace elements and push them to their highest levels. That's where you're going to get a lot of the immunity from, is pushing these trace elements to their highest levels. And I'll try to mention some of the things you do get when you, on particular ones when you, when you do that. Sources are sodium borate, which comes either at 10 to 20 percent, depending on the material. Um, it's all the same stuff. It's just a matter of how much water's in it or how much water's not in it. It's all mined. It all, all comes from the same sources. Um, I thought I put a... Okay, it's on the next one. The other source is uh, boric acid, but boric acid is made from sodium borate. Boric acid is the form that the plant actually uses it in. And this is something beyond... I mean, this is something you can learn as a refinement later on. You can actually apply more boric acid at one time than you can sodium borate without creating a problem. It's the sodium part of the borate, that it, uh, the boron, that has a problem there. You can actually apply the, in boric acid form, and whatever the plant doesn't need, it'll just dump out the roots. It's a good way to build boron in the soil by foliar applying it to the, to the plant. It's boric acid. And, and what about uh, <coughs> uh, borax? Borax is sodium borate. Mm -hmm. The stuff you buy in the grocery store. Yeah, so if you don't need a lot, just go to Walmart or the grocery store and get 20 mule team borax. That's what it is, sodium borate. It's usually 11%. It's usually what it is. Now, now the, boric, the, borax, the uh, boric acid can also come in a liquid? It's usually a powder. Oh. Yeah. 
And sometimes you can get it, there's a place like we can get it from Bulk Apothecary is a, a web, uh, you know, an online place we can get it, boric acid from. I can't remember what it's used for. They use it for, as an ant bait to kill ants. Um, they used to use it, and I'll, I'll tell you that, let me, let's just go through this and I'll tell you. They used to use it as a weed killer, a non-persistent weed killer. And I'll, I'll, we'll get to that when I get over to the, the excess side there. Um, okay, the deficiency symptoms are growing tip dieback. You're going to see it in the growing tip first on, uh, on the plant. And internal stem disorders, where there's the, the, the structuring of the xylem and the phloem and the internal structure of the stem is not right. That's something that the, the, the one you're going to see is the one, uh, the growing tip dying back. I've got, I grow a variety of tomatoes. It's a pink tomato. It's got fantastic flavor. It's got just enough acidity to get that tomato flavor, but it's, it's sweet. And when you put those two things together, it's just, it, it's got this satiny pink skin and a scarlet red flesh. It's a Japanese variety and it's fantastic, but it is really sensitive to boron and cal calcium. If I don't keep boron and calcium where they need to be, it, it, you'll see tip dieback and all kinds of things on it with that one, but usually the higher quality um, foods, even a lot of the heirlooms, by the way, a lot of heirlooms are heirlooms because they were good varieties. They had great eating qualities and things like that, but a lot of them have deteriorated quite a bit as far as productivity and those type of things. If you give them back what they were used to having in the past, you'll see a totally different experience with those. Higher yields, better, better shaping, uh, all of those kind of things than what you typically experience now. Okay, the excess side is uh, it's a phytotoxic reaction which causes death. It's, it's not a persistent thing. It happens on, with contact. And so what they would do is they would overapply boron and it would kill everything that was growing. And so then they would take and, uh, then they would take and plant after it integrated in, because it's not a persistent thing, it only lasts for a short period of time, and then it integrates in, and it's not a problem anymore. And so then they would go ahead and plant plant in. Um, if if you if you want to use that, it also kills ants, by the way. It's, it's boric acid is what they use as ant bait, and you can mix it with some some uh, honey or or corn syrup or anything like that, and put it on a little tray, and the ants will come up and eat it and take it back down to feed every, the little ones in the in the nest and, and it'll kill them on that. It's a, it's a much less toxic ant bait if you're going to do something like that than anything. So that's anything. a non-selective herbicide? Non-selective. It's not really an herbicide. I mean, it's an herbicide in the fact that it'll kill everything because of the phytotoxic reaction that, that happens. If you put it on, you have to put it on a certain quantity. Um, I put a note under here, to avoid, to avoid this upper reaction from happening, you should apply no more than two pounds of actual boron at one time. Per acre, actual boron. So if you were using borax, you'd put on 20 pounds. 20 pounds, and I'd give you two pounds. I'd give you 2.1 pounds, or 2.2 pounds. I know, yeah, 2.2 pounds, which is close enough. You can actually apply four pounds, but if you get any overlap, what are you gonna, how much are you going to wind up having? If you overlap four pounds, you're going to wind up with eight pounds, eight pounds of overlap, right? So uh, that will kill things. I, I put on four pounds at a time, but remember I said I'm pretty accurate about the way I apply it. 
And the way I applied, it winds up, anything that might overlap, it winds up out in the pathway rather than in the bed. And so if I, if I happen to get a little bit too much that way, then it, it's not going to hurt anything there. If it, if it kills the, any weed growth out in the pathway, that's not a bad thing. So, and, I, and again, that phytotoxic reaction dissipates fairly quickly, so it's not a, it's not a persistent thing. Huh? Well, it depends on how much moisture is there and how much rainfall. It's just a matter of dissipating it out, you know, <coughs> distributing it out so there's no concentrations of it. Um, it, can be as matters of, it can be in a matter of a few days if there's enough moisture there. It might take a week or two if, uh, if it's fairly dry to, to have that accomplished. But like I said, I don't, whatever I recommend has to hold up in a court of law. And so I rarely recommend, until I get to know a grower and I know, you know, they're going to listen. Because um, there, there are some cases where you should not put, where you will see here in a minute, you should not put something on unless you put something else on. And you know how people say, oh, well, I didn't get to that, but I did that. And so I always put notes on here, don't do this unless you do that. And we'll see that in just a minute. Cases of that. Well, like for, uh, for example, Kibadula over in Tanzania. They cannot put the cal they, they don't have any dolomitic lime in Tanzania. No dolomitic lime cores. They only have high calcium lime. And uh, they need magnesium. And so we're having to use magnesium sulfate. It'd be better to ship it in from the states in a container. But um, he, he can't put the calcium lime on without putting the magnesium on because he'll drive his magnesium too low. And then he'll have magnesium deficiencies on those trees and cause problems. That I can... A lot of times they'll blend it in with something else to spread it. You can dissolve it at any of those any of those concentrations, 10% to 20%. You can dissolve sodium borate; it'll dissolve in the solution. You can spray it on if, it, if it's easier for you to do that. Um, if you've got a smaller area, I, I've gotten so I just go out and I sprinkle with my hand, and I I know kind of what I'm putting on. You know, after you've done it for 25 years, it kind of you kind of get a feel for. And I, I I'll do it at. I know that I'm not overlapping, and you, you just have to maintain, like I said, I have to make, when I make recommendations, I have to make recommendations based on what will hold up in a court of law. Um, if I know a grower well enough, there are, you can push, push things and get it done faster, if need be. What I would typically do if you need a lot of boron in, in that situation is I would say put the two pounds on now after you get several soaking rains or heavy irrigation, then go out and put another two pounds on. It's just a matter, you've got to get it integrated so you don't have that concentration in, in you know, small areas, so you can go out and put a second application on after you get s several soaking rains or irrigation cycles to, to integrate it in. Okay, any questions about boron? Um, excess boron. Now, what can you, how can you drive the boron out if you do have excess? Oh, you won't have any problem getting rid of boron. The only, the only time you'll have a problem getting rid of boron is if you have compaction. And one of the ways you can tell if you have compaction, if you've got soda, sulfur building up, unless you have a lot of it coming in on water, if you've got sulfur, higher levels of sulfur, boron, and sodium, those are all easily leached through the soil. If you start seeing those building, you've got a compaction layer, and it's not moving with the water through that compaction layer. We're going to have to speed up here. To okay, the next one is iron. Rolls of iron are parts... It's part of many enzymes. It's required for chlorophyll formation. And its desired value on the, the test that I use is 200 parts per million plus. The reason I put it that way 
is that nobody knows what the upper limit on iron is. The problem is when you get iron really high and manganese, manganese not adequate and potassium and some other things, you get, you get a lot of uh, invasive grass pressures from crabgrass, quackgrass, um, Bermuda grass, Johnson grass, all these rhizome-based grasses seem to just thrive on high iron levels. And, and it, until you get more balanced there, it's hard to eliminate those grasses. They'll just keep growing because the conditions are... Again, we'll talk about that. You know, once you change the conditions, your ability to, to manage those things uh, is a lot, a lot easier. Of high levels of iron, yeah. Now, that's usually you've got other issues. You've got, you've got anaerobic conditions, and those rhizome grasses can handle anaerobic conditions, and they grow you know, close to the surface and spread by the rhizomes. So that's one of the reasons they're growing there like that. Uh, sources, ferrous sulfate. Ferrous is just a term for iron, iron sulfate. A 21 or 30% iron sulfate. 21% just has more water in it, and it, it'll typically have a kind of a bluish green color to it. And uh, the other will have kind of a whitish gray color to it, the 30%. It's just a matter of how much water's in it. The 21% is more soluble than the 30%, but either one will work. You don't want, you don't want 50% iron. They're trying to sell you that. I don't bother. It's just rust. I mean, it's iron oxide. And if you can get, if, if, if your soil is such that you can get iron oxide broken down in the soil, then there's no point, you're not, there's no need to put iron on, so um, you don't need to add to your rust collection. Okay, deficiencies, intervenal chlorosis on the younger leaves. So in between the veins on the leaves, you'll see yellowing. It's in between, the veins will stay green, but in between the veins, it'll t yellow. If it gets bad enough, then everything will, everything will yellow, but usually once everything's yellowing, um, your plant's dying. Excesses, there are no known symptoms of excess iron. Except some of the things that'll grow because of the excess iron. Yeah, if you had 200 parts per million, blueberries would do great. On a higher CEC soil, I'll encourage people to take it all the way as high as 360. But as long as you have 200, as long as you have 200 there, there'll be plenty of iron to... Okay, the next one is manganese. And manganese role is, acts with iron in chlorophyll formation. Iron and manganese work together in doing a lot of things. And you'll see here in a minute, there's a, there's a, uh, a caution that you need to keep in mind. They, it speeds seed germination and crop maturity. If you want your seeds to come out a uniform stand out of the ground, make sure you have adequate manganese. You get adequate manganese there, have you ever had stuff come up and some comes up here and then some comes up there and it's just erratic, it's not... You get the manganese levels up to where they need to be in the soil and everything will just come out of the ground all together. It helps in uptake of other nutrients and it's the second factor in stalk strength. Potassium, remember, was the first one. Manganese is critical for stalk strength. And it's not just stiffness, it's, it's flexibility. It's a, it's a resilient thing as well on that. And your desired value on that is anywhere from, this one has got an upper limit on it, where there's no known upper limit on iron. The desired value is 125 to 240 parts per million. And what the desired value would be, uh, would be determined by the CEC on that. I don't remember if I put it on there. I don't think I did, so I'll just, if I did, I'll, I'll set it anyway. 
you never want manganese higher than iron. Iron always has to be higher than manganese in the soil, even if it's just five parts per million, which would be 10 pounds, which is just an indicator that it's higher everywhere. The reason for that is if manganese is higher than iron and, and manganese is taken up more than iron, it will oxidize the iron in the leaf and make it dysfunctional. And you, would do a, you could do a leaf analysis and they'd send it back to you and oh, you have plenty of iron. Well, why am I having a problem with it? The problem is the iron's there, it's just oxidized. It's in the leaf. And so when they do a leaf analysis and they ash the leaf, the iron is there, but it's not functional. And so you always want to be sure. I have a lot of, I have a lot of growers where, they have that, where we're having to work on getting iron up above the manganese because the manganese levels are, are fairly good and the iron's really low. Okay, sources, again, it's a sulfate form. You're going to see the sulfate form is going to be predominant here. That's because that's the soluble form. There are oxide forms of all of these, but they're not very soluble, and they take a long time to break down. Uh, so these are all in the sulfate form. Manganese sulfate at 32%. Sometimes you'll see it a little bit lower than that, but that's uh, predominantly what you see it at is 32%. Deficiency symptoms. Intervenal chlorosis with small necrotic spots on young leaves. The... The symptoms for this are very similar to iron. On the young leaves, you have intervenal chlorosis, but a lot of times you'll have small necrotic spots or dead spots in the leaf, and it has more of a, the iron is not, this, the manganese has, in my experience, has smaller little chlorotic circles inside, around, in, on the leaf, rather than that the iron ones are, tend to be bigger than the manganese ones, but. Sometimes it's hard to tell which one is which. I can tell which one is which pretty well now, but it, it's, it's very subtle. Uh, and a lot of times I'll do a leaf analysis just to find out, you know, to make sure I'm right. Sometimes I'll just do a foliar test. I'll put, because you can put manganese on if you're deficient manganese. You put it on, go to lunch, come back out, you'll, you'll know if it was manganese. It'll be greened up already. So that's all the time it takes. Excess problems, inhibition of calcium and magnesium uptake. In other words, it'll interfere with calcium and magnesium uptake. And the potential oxidation of iron in the plant, manganese should never be higher than iron in the soil because then it'll potentially be higher than iron in the plant and you'll have that oxidation effect on the iron which makes it dysfunctional. Okay, I think we're about out of time. Let's see here. Um, copper. The roles of copper, parts of several enzymes, disease resistance, moisture control, stalk strength. This is your third key to stalk strength, is copper. It gives flexibility, just like collagen is elastic, it gives flexibility to the, uh, to the stem. <clears throat> Desired value is five to 10 parts per million. Uh, depending on the CEC, in general, I always I encourage people to go to tens parts per million. If you grow berries, small fruits, most, most small fruit growers who know what they're doing will raise that level to 12 to 15 parts per million. It will completely eliminate fungal problems on small fruits. Uh, and that's not a problem as long as everything else is good. Again, remember I said the major elements, if they're taken care of, uh, as long as they're good, then you can push some of these trace elements up higher than what these normal ranges here. I only tell that to people when I, they get everything else good and I, and I say, okay, they say, well, what else can I do? Then I'll start talking to them about some of the things that they can do to enhance that, to refine the process to, 
to make it better. But yeah, it'll eliminate, if you're growing strawberries, you're growing blueberries, you're growing blackberries, raspberries, any of those. Uh, and the sources, again, copper sulfate form, copper sulfate, 23 to 25% copper. If you're going to try to spread it, you want to make sure you get the smaller crystals, not the powder. You'll, you'll find the powder a lot because they put it in feed supplement again. The powder you're going to have to dissolve and spray on. But if you want to try to spread it, you want the smaller crystals. Sometimes they come in bigger, bigger crystal chunks, and the, the, the way you need to disperse it, you, you're not going to get it spread out too much. Um, a good source of copper, because they supplemented the turkeys, because they're highly sensitive to uh, aneurysms, um, is turkey compost. It's variable in there, but uh, they spent the money on the copper, and you can usually get it way cheaper than you can get it in the bag. If, if you have so access to that source, you can use everything else. Deficiencies, uh, young leaves wilt, weak stem tip, uh, it may tip out, you know, bent fuller, disease pressure. Copper is another one I didn't mention there. Copper is another one of those uh, factors in sweetness. If you want sweet melons or, or sweet vegetative stuff like, you know, a, a, a nicer flavor to broccoli or things like that, copper will definitely enhance that. Uh, excess is root growth inhibition and the suppression of other nutrients. You don't really see those symptoms. Uh, you see them as other sim deficiency symptoms. You don't see it, the copper when it's uh, excessive. You're not going to see that on the surface. Okay, we better quit. Well, let's see. Yeah, let, we better stop. Our time is up. We're five minutes past. We'll, we'll get this in when we begin the other one. We don't have too far to go. Zinc is the last major one, and then we have the, the uh, oh, well, zinc and, and molybdenum, and then we have some of the ones that aren't commonly measured that are relevant. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.